1 Timothy and chapter 6 is where we will be this morning. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 11. 1 Timothy is one of the letters written by the Apostle Paul to young and less experienced ministers of the gospel in churches, specifically here to young Timothy. And so it is godly advice on how to not only be built up in the faith, but to build others up as well. Remember that the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And remember that the word of the Lord is completely authoritative over you and me. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world... And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. <clears throat> oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have brought us to this time and this place where we can hear from You in Your word, Your word that is eternal. Lord, we ask that You would use Your Word to convict us of our sin, to comfort us, and to show us, O Lord, that You have made provision for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was a typical American family. Mom... And dad, and a little seven-year-old boy. And they went out to the most typical of American places, the mall. And they walked down through the great expanse with the hustle and bustle and the big lights. And as they walked here and there, they, they looked and they saw various shops and eateries and, and places with lights and with fancy things. But one place caught their eye and they stopped and they walked in. And they looked at some merchandise in that place. 
Then it began. I want this. What? This. I want this. I I need this. I gotta have it, please. Would you let me have it? No, honey, the woman said. That's not something we really need right now, and it's a little bit more than we want to spend. You don't really need it. But I do, I do, I need it. I'll die if I don't get it. No, honey, I'm sure you won't. Come along. You'll be just fine. Maybe later I'll get you a small cookie. Come with me. And the seven-year-old boy looked up at Mom, his eyes glistening, and he said, Mom, why does Dad need that? Because you see, it's in all of us, isn't it? We want, we need, we just can't see past how we can make it another day without it. Could be a car. Could be a phone. Could be a book. Could be a dollar. But somehow we have convinced ourselves that our very purpose and being is bound up in that thing and unless we get it, we'll never be the same. Now the irony of this is is that oftentimes this plays out in your life and in mine except for without the loud noises and the dramatics. It's an internal struggle, isn't it? It's something that is... Not evident to the world at large because it's in our hearts. It's perhaps the most difficult sin to put to death. Of course, I'm talking about coveting and a lack of contentment with the estate in which the Lord has placed us. And that's what Paul is speaking about this morning to Timothy. He is trying to describe for Timothy and for you and for me that we must let go of this discontent. We must let go of this need for more and now. And in its place will come a great contentment. A contentment that is of the Lord and a godliness that follows. And so this morning I would like us to see three things from our text. The first thing is I would like us to see the satisfaction of contentment. The satisfaction of contentment. And then secondly, there is a warning built into our passage, a warning of the pitfalls of discontent. And then finally, there is good biblical wisdom and how we can have the practice of contentment. For you see, God doesn't just tell us what we are to do. He walks along with us and encourages us and equips us to do His will. The satisfaction of contentment, the pitfalls of discontent, and the practice of contentment. Well, let's begin now by looking at the satisfaction of contentment. What does it mean to be content? Well, I think on some level, if I can draw a word picture, it is that idea that we are satisfied. 
We're not agitated. We're not pining away for something more. We maybe could have some more. It might even on some level be good to have some more of something, but we don't really need it and we know it. It's that feeling perhaps that you have had after a wonderful meal. When you realize in those rarest of occasions that you have eaten just enough of wonderful food to be content. And you could eat more, but you know that wouldn't be a good thing. And so you sit down and you relax and you're thankful for what you've been given. You see, contentment is something that comes to us from knowing our relationship with the Lord. First and foremost, knowing that it is the Lord who provides, or excuse me, the Lord who is in charge. He is the one who is sovereign and in control of our lives. Now, we need to understand the context of how this comes to us. I am not here to tell you this morning that it is wrong and bad and wicked to desire a blessing. And that you should just be happy if you've got nothing. Because that would be unrealistic, wouldn't it? It it is normal to want to be blessed. It is normal to want to have a good life. It is normal to want to see God's kindness in our lives. See, this is not about, contentment is not about denying reality. What real contentment is about is refocusing our thoughts and our hearts. You see, if there is one way to describe sin and its problem, it's that sin is wrongly directed desires or thoughts. You see, Satan is a wily foe. He knows that it is far easier to tempt you with something that is good to be used in a wrong way for the wrong purpose, at the wrong time, with the wrong motive, than it is to convince you that something that is horrible and miserable is good. You see, that's what sin is all about. A good example of this are emotions. You see, some think that perhaps the best way to be a Christian is to be as unemotional as possible. You know, emotions are bad. They make people do sticky things. They they cry. They, they get angry, they get loud. That's If we could just shut that off and become as close to robotic as possible, then we'll be protected from sinning. But you see, that's not how emotions work. Emotions are good. The Bible calls us to be joyful. The Bible calls us to weep. The Bible calls us to be angry at times. But within the right parameters and for the right reasons... And so here, as we think about our desire for blessing, we have to see it in the right context and in the right parameters. And the first thing that Paul tells us is, we are not self-sufficient. And he puts it in a way that every single one of us, no matter how young we are, can understand. He says, for we brought nothing into the world. Isn't that true? When was the last time you saw a baby come out with an iPod? Or a nice sweater. Or some car keys. No. Right? It's, it's a truism that 
When we are born, we come out not only with nothing, but needing everything. We can't do anything for ourselves. We can't feed ourselves. We can't take care of ourselves. We can't make ourselves warm. We are completely and utterly dependent. And you see, Paul uses this analogy for a reason. What he is saying is, is that it's not about what you've done. Because as soon as we think it's about us and what we can do and what we can get, then Satan gets a foothold. And then our good and normal desires to see blessing and to see prosperity become wickedness. They become a focus upon ourselves to the exclusion of others because we think we have to claw and scratch and get. The other thing we have to remember is that it's not easy to stay on top, is it? Some of you that have been in the rat race know that. Just when you think you've made it at work, a new challenge comes. Just when you think the budget is balanced, something comes in. And you see, this is what causes friction in our life. Paul talks about this too, the way the world handles it. There is in verse 5, a constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Those who do not know God, who do not know the reality of the world, who do not know that He is in charge, who do not know that they are not self-sufficient, they spend all of their time elbowing, pushing, shoving, trying to get ahead. This is an important lesson, I think, to teach our children, isn't it? You see, I think one of the things that can be laid at the foot of my generation and my parents' generation is that we have attempted to be too good to our kids. Yes, kids, I know that sounds weird to you. But it's true. We have tried to spare our children from any negativity. We've tried to give them the best education, tried to give them the best food, tried to give them the best homes, tried to make sure they were sheltered from anything that could possibly be negative. If you showed up once at a practice of a sport, you get a trophy because we wouldn't want you to lose your self-esteem. If you fail a test, we somehow explain that failing is passing and it's good and go right along, little Johnny. But you see, the reality is is that Life is not always okay. It's hard to stay on top. It's hard to manage with what we have. But that is where we seek the Lord. And you see, parents, what you are called to do today is not to protect your children from adversity. But to teach them that in adversity and scarcity, where you go is the Lord. Not your pocketbook. Not working harder. We're not self-sufficient. But we're also, Paul says, we're not in control. Do you see this here? He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul is the master of the obvious here, isn't he? But this is a wonderful phrase. It's actually, the and here has really the idea of being what grammarians call a result clause. In other words, Because we brought nothing into the world, you know it's going to come about that you can't take anything out of it either, right? You know that all the stuff that you get now, no matter how good it is, no matter how much it encourages you, no matter what kind of a blessing it is, it's not permanent. I mean, ask yourself that question. 
Can you take it with you? Many of us know that as we grow older, it's not even that we can't take it with us, we can't keep it. Think in your mind's eye of your grandparents or your great-grandparents and the way that they had to give up the home they'd lived in 20 or 30 or 40 years because they couldn't keep it up anymore. They had to stop driving the car they loved because they, they couldn't do it anymore. Had to stop eating the food that they loved because they just couldn't do it anymore. You see, this is a reminder that God is the one who is in control and we are not. And let me ask you this question. In the answer of your heart, would you really want to take it with you? Would you really want a circa 2008 laptop in eternity? Seriously. Of course not. Would you really want a gas guzzler on the streets of glory? No. Not only can't we take it with us, really in reality we don't want to take it with us. We long for something better. But while we are here, we know that not only is the Lord in charge, but that He provides for us. You see this here in verse 8. But if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. I want to encourage you that the word but in the Bible is one of the most significant words in all of the Scripture. Because it takes us from our mindset and where we want to go and where we want to be and especially in our despair and it says, but that's not reality. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God by the riches of His grace. You are scraping and clawing, trying to take stuff with you, but God provides. But God gives us food and clothing. And with these we'll be content. You see, what Paul is saying here is not, you should be happy with one pair of jeans and two clean shirts. What Paul is saying here is, what you need, God will provide. There is a bigger biblical principle here. And so as you think about, well, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to make it through the month. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. Your next thought should be, that's not my problem. That's God's problem. That's His promise that He has given to me, that He will give me what I truly need. Not what I want, not what I hope for, but what I need. And you see, it takes our eyes off of the stuff of life and puts it on the Creator of all. And then when those things do come to us, we realize that it comes to us from the hand of a giving and blessing Lord. There's also one other thing that's interesting about the way the Lord provides and how that affects our attitude. Do you see it here in the last half of verse 8? If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. How despairing would it be if Paul had written, and with these we should be content. Right? And it's all on you. Get yourself straightened up, would you? Please, be content. And let the preacher rail on you. 
Work up some contentment now, people. I'm not content that you're not content. But you see, what Paul says here is, this comes from the hand of a loving God, and contentment will swell up in you. Now, how will this come? We saw it last week. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you remember verse 8? And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Having all sufficiency. Otherwise translated, contentment. It's the same word. You will be content because not only will God give you stuff, God will give you contentment with the stuff you have. What a God we serve. Paul also warns us, secondly, that there are pitfalls to discontent. Do you see what he says here? Those who desire, in verse 9, to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, and plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And we see here that when we are discontented, we are filled with miserable desires. Now, do you notice something about what Paul writes here? He doesn't say, the rich do this, the rich do that. He doesn't say, money does this, money does that. Because you see, that would be far too easy. It would be objective. We could easily sidestep that. Well, if the rich are the problem, I'll just determine how rich rich is, and I'll be on this side of it. No problem. If money is the problem, I'll just avoid money. Maybe real estate will be my game. Maybe collectibles. Paul doesn't say comic books are the root of all evil. I'll just start tearing all my money into collectible comic books. And you see, we could come up with things that absurd. But you see, what Paul is saying here is, is that these desires come from our heart and us not being focused on God. It is the thought that we can change reality by the very force of our will. And we see this both in the church and outside. Outside the church, this takes the focus of ignoring God. You know the Proverbs, right? If you don't look out for yourself, who will? Hey, you better be looking out for number one. And it buries itself in absurdities. So we live in a day and age in which people make a conscious decision not to have children. A conscious decision, not dictated by health or by God's providence, a conscious decision because if they have children, it will cost them money and they can't have a vacation home. Or they won't be able to get a new car every three years. Do you know how much kids cost? Kids, you're expensive. Trust me. And I'm not just talking about the toys. You know how much you all eat? And not only it started on college, it just depressed me. And you see, this is the kind of society we begin living in where we only think about ourselves. And it actually stops us from even building a family. And and it leads to the kind of absurdity that is everywhere in our world today. You would think if we were 
focused upon money that we would begin hoarding money. But you see, it's actually the exact opposite. One of the great problems that I saw in Africa was that as soon as you give anyone any money, they run out and they spend it. Why? Wouldn't you, couldn't you, shouldn't you save? You have problems? You have illnesses? You, know, you might want to build a business? No, I don't know if I'm going to live tomorrow. I'm going to spend it now. Why do I want to? I want to enjoy what I've got. And so we see that in our society today, don't we? No one saves any money anymore in the main. And it makes us angry when we think about it with our government, don't we? There's no thought at all for the future. We can't give up anything right now. No, no, no. If we were to possibly cut 1% or 2% out of the growth of government, it would be Armageddon. Because we wouldn't be able to get that 2% of stuff. And we look and we say, it's all them. If only they would stop. If only we could change what they're doing. But the problem isn't them. The problem, my dear friends, is us. Because to use one worldly measure, every single poll says that everyone is for cutting everything that they don't get. And as soon as you come to what I get, stop right now. You're killing me. Because you see, that's how we're built. And we feed on each other. It builds up a desire in us to ignore the one who provides everything. But it also happens in the church, doesn't it? There's another whole movement in the church in America that says that we can use God to get our stuff. How can I be happier? Well, I need more stuff. God wants me to be happy, doesn't He? God, send me some stuff. You want me to be happy? It says so in your word. So you better pay up, buddy. How can I get this more stuff? Well, maybe if I just convince God. Maybe if I do things that God will like. Maybe if I find a secret recipe in the Bible. Maybe if I piece words together from several books of the Bible into a coherent sentence, then that will find me the secret of how to get stuff from God. But really, at its core, what that's saying is, how can God serve me so I can get stuff? And the problem here is, is that when we do this, we think we are trying to achieve freedom, and we're really not free. You know, it's said that if you really want to have freedom and liberty as an American today, if you really want to be free from the pressures of the world, there is one tangible sign of that. And that is, if you own your own jet airplane. If you own your own jet, you're in charge of your life. you got enough money to burn, literally. And you don't have to wait on anyone. And so we always think we just need to get there. We just need to get to that point where we can be safe, where we can not have to worry about the pressures of the world, not have to worry about where our daily bread will come from, not have to worry or think about the one who gives us the daily bread. Paul's got some sharp words for that kind of thinking. He says, those kind of people fall into senseless and harmful desires. Let me be a little bit more crass. He says, if you want to do that, you're a fool. It's the same word that Paul will use with the Galatians when he says, oh foolish Galatians, oh senseless Galatians, what on earth are you thinking? Do you really think that the Lord of the universe exists 
to give you a better phone? To give you a car that has more mileage? Seriously? But you see, that is, if we're not careful, the pitfall we can fall into. And it actually is, it brings about the opposite of what it is that we want. Because what we want is liberty and life. And what happens is, Paul says, we get trapped. We are caught in a snare. You know what a snare is, don't you? It's a trap that someone lays out that hopefully you won't see and will suck you up, box you in, grab you by the foot and sling you up a tree. And you think you can get free, but you can't. You see, this is how sin works. It promises liberty, but brings slavery. It promises life, but brings death. And you see, that's the most dangerous thing. Because there's a spiritual destruction that follows. It's not just ruin and destruction, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is Paul's way of describing what our Lord says when He says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and stuff. Or money, as your translation is. Now this is not that all money is evil. We look at Abraham. He was a man blessed by God with great wealth, but he also had his eyes upon his Lord and Savior. Remember, too, that it's not just about money. Because right about now, every young person has checked out. I don't have much in my bank account. I can't go and spend money. Big night out for me is Chick-fil-A. But it's not just about money. Can you live without the latest video game? Will life go on? Will you breathe and eat if you don't have the latest video game? You know, this also affects ministers. Can you live without that old book? Can you possibly make it further without that tome? You see, all of us have something that tug at our hearts. And we need to be focused upon the Lord and be thinking to ourselves, if we don't get whatever that is, life will go on. And God will bless us. Because you see, if we let that tug in our heart take over, then what will happen is life will not go on. It is a road to destruction. You see what Paul says, as you are going about craving this, as you long for these things, what will happen is you will be destroyed. And he says it in a very interesting way. He says you will wander away. The word here for wander is the same word that when it's used in the active voice, when someone wanders you, they deceive you by lies from the truth. You see, this word is also used with the way false teachers bring false doctrine into your life and convince you of wrong things that will bring you to destruction and perdition. Now, good Reformed Presbyterians, let me ask you this question. You don't like false doctrine, do you? No, of course not. You wouldn't want to be carried aside by liars, would you? No then why are you going to carry yourself down that same path for stuff? Do not be vigilant about the truth. 
and lack any forethought for your heart. That's what Paul's saying. And you see here, it's something that we bring about to ourselves. We wander. We pierce ourselves with many pangs. So what then can we do? How can we cultivate a heart that is content with what's before us? Well, Paul gives us an answer in two parts in verse 11. First, we flee the world's path. And then second, we pursue the Lord's path. So, we flee the Lord's, the world's path. And this means we must not just be satisfied with knowing about the problem. Understanding. Yes, contentment, good. Discontentment, bad. No. We must act. You see? But as for you, and that but is a very strong, that but should really be capital B, capital U, capital T. But, O man of God, you must flee. Now this may sound cowardly, wouldn't it? Young strapping men. You don't run, do you? You don't turn tail, do you? You don't be chicken, do you? Well, in this instance, you do. It's not chicken. It's not cowardly. It's wise. We run away from the devil and his wiles. We don't think we have enough in ourselves to get the job done. We flee away from the situation Trusting in the Lord. Now, what does that look like? Let me give you some very simple instructions. Close the ad. You don't need that car. Not if it's going to do that to your marriage. Turn off the commercial. You don't need that toy if it's going to cause a fight. Leave the store if it keeps nagging at you. Leave the conversation that you are having if that is causing you to covet in your heart and to want something that the Lord has not given to you. And instead, pursue the Lord's path. Do you see what Paul says? Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. This is a very active thing. Run not just away, but run toward Pursue it. Go after it. I want you to picture in your mind that you are pursuing righteousness and truth. And you are dressed in a very sharp red uniform with a wonderful hat on top and probably a horse next to you. Some of you know that I'm describing the person who always gets his man. A Canadian Mountie. That's how you are to pursue righteousness. You are to never give up. You are to go after it. You are always to get it. Never looking to the left nor the right. This is how we are to pursue what God has placed in our path. And He will give us then the fruit of godliness, which includes contentment, but also love, steadfastness, gentleness. And at the end, you see, the Lord knows what's best for you and me. In the end, you will get what Paul says is great gain in godliness. Not just gain, great gain. You know what kind of gain? Mega gain. That's literally what the word is. 
mega, supersized gain. And that will show up in the relationships you have with others. It will show in the gain of the contentment with what you have now. You will appreciate what you have and use it better. But most importantly, you will get great gain in your own soul. Because you see, that is where contentment resides. That is what the Lord is fashioning. Do you seek contentment? Seek the Lord. And He will provide it for you. And He will help you conquer this most difficult sin. He can do it. He is God after all. 